0: There is only one way that the story of Mau Mau can begin, and that's with the issue of land. The Kikuyu, Kenya's largest and most prosperous ethnic group, had lost their ancestral homeland in the White Highlands as a direct consequence of British colonization. Despite this injustice, they actively supported the crown in World War II by offering their lives as soldiers and more significantly, the fertility of their soil by overworking their land for the greater good of the war. But as more and more Kikuyu were forcibly relocated onto reservations, which had already far exceeded their carrying capacity, they found it impossible to get over the land issue. A Kukuyu parable explains why they couldn't just move on. The parable teaches that, when someone steals your ox, it is killed and roasted and eaten. One can then forget the crime. When someone steals your land, however, especially if nearby, one can never forget. It is always there, its trees, which were dear friends, its little streams. It becomes a bitter presence that never leaves your sight. The anger that built up within the aggrieved peoples of Kenya had no outlet until 1943, when the first oathing ceremonies began among the Kikuyu people. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the second episode in a five-part series regarding the father of modern-day Kenya, Jomo Kenyatta. Episode 2, The Mau Mau Crisis. There is little in our modern world that allows us to understand the power of these ceremonies that bound Mau Mau together. It is an entirely foreign concept to our world where so few oaths are kept. Just think about the last time someone said to you, you can't tell anyone, and how quickly you then texted, tweeted, or whispered that information to another. Prior to this episode's events, Kikuyu men had taken oaths to forge solidarity during times of war or internal crisis. The oath would serve to morally bind society together in the face of a great challenge. In 1943, an oath was made to oppose the British until their land was returned. We can all get behind this concept but the 1943 oath was more radical than what most of us would be willing to condone, for this oath included the requirement to violently oppose the British and absolutely anyone that helped their oppressors, particularly Loyalist Kikuyus. Unlike previous iterations, this time the oath was expanded to also be administered to women and children. This was not a simple pledge, done quickly in the shadows and then forgotten. The ceremony sometimes included well over 100 participants. Initiates would enter into a subliminal state after passing through an arch of banana leaves before shedding all their clothing. Metaphorically transforming from their former self in order to be reborn as a true member of those who had taken the oaths or, as they became referred to, the Mau Mau. A ritual goat would be slaughtered, and then binding vows would be administered, such as, do you agree to become a Kikuyu, a full Kakuyu, free from blemish? To which the response was, may this oath kill me. Questions progressed upwards towards violence, including if I know of any enemy to our organization, and fail to kill him, may this oath kill me. As well as, if I reveal this oath to an European, may this oath kill me. The oath served as a binding social contract and the newly-initiated Mau Mau believed in its almost magical power over them. They truly accepted the idea that any violation of the oath would result in their immediate death at the hands of their traditional creator god, Gai. The colonial government estimated that the first Mau Mau oath, or the Oath of Unity, was administered to nearly 90% of the 1.5 million Kikuyu, A significant portion, but much less than 90%, took the seventh and final oath, known as the Bantuni, or Killing Oath. Historian Caroline Elkins is the foremost expert on the Mau Mau conflict and our main resource for today's topic. She tells us that the fear of the oaths was real in the hearts of the settlers, pointing out that, quote, Settlers and colonist officials alike were repelled by the Kikuyu oaths, which used powerful symbols like menstrual blood, goat eyeballs, and rams' intestines and scrotums. Mau Mau's method of killing involved knives and machetes. It was absolutely bloody and helped to drive local Europeans into a frenzied state of fear. Prussian war theorist Karl von Clausewitz describes war as merely the continuation of politics by other means. In other words, violence comes about because one of the parties believes that it can gain a political concession. For the Mau Mau, this was Ithka na wieti, or Land and Freedom. The Kenyan political elite, of which Jomo Kenyatta already belonged, split in the 1940s along the same lines of another British colony on what was commonly referred to as the Dark Continent. In South Africa, it was Nelson Mandela joining the spear of the nation to undertake a violent campaign of retribution against the British after he became convinced that there was no other political solution available. Mandela would go on to serve 27 years of hard labor at Robben Island, before eventually becoming the dutifully elected president of a free South Africa. With Itka Na Wieti in mind, the Land and Freedom Army, or Mau Mau as the British referred to them, were unleashed. The movement was less of an army and more of a decentralized insurgency a movement with no clear leader, and thus no one strategizing with their hand at the wheel. Kenyan police believe that the first act of Mau Mau violence came on October 3rd, 1952, when the white settler Mrs. A.M. Wright was stabbed to death near her home, just 10 minutes outside of Nairobi. The murder was shocking in its cruelty and its brazenness. Even ten minutes of travel time was plenty of time for the perpetrator of the act to escape into the rural countryside of Kenya. The death of Mrs. Wright may have been the first act of violence, but it was far from the last. The press in Kenya and England both ran with the sensationalized versions of the story, creating a lasting image of the perpetrators as unredeemable savages. Elkin suggests that it was the British press, in stories like this, that really created the concept of Mau Mau. Absent the naming of it, the movement could have just remained a faint concept in the background. The press's portrayal of Mau Mau filled the people's minds of a barbaric anti-European, anti-Christian sect that utilized primitive terror to interrupt the good Christian missionaries from England. With each new act of violence, fear ratcheted up throughout the colony, with everyone wondering if they were the next victim. Simultaneously, the contrast in descriptions between the white settlers and black Mau Mau only grew wider. The Mau Mau had become gangsters terrorizing the local European missionaries. If you could only protect one, which would you choose, the missionaries or the terrorists? With this portrayal, there was no thought to figuring out their raison d'etre, or reason for being. There was no thought of fixing the land issues that had caused them to lash out in violence. Rather, the historical record is littered with settler descriptions utilizing dehumanizing terms, such as vermin, animals, and barbarians. One such official government passage claims that the Mau Mau lived in sprawling heaps, hovels that seethed with mud and animals. Like other predatory animals, they were described as cunning, vicious, and bloodthirsty, animals that needed to be killed in order to save one's children. Words have meaning. The Sapir-Wolf Hypothesis on Linguistic Reality teaches that words shape our understanding of reality. Descriptions intended to dehumanize the enemy succeeded with locals. A picture was painted that Mau Mau adherents did not belong to the human race. They were diseased, filthy animals who, left unchecked, would infect the rest of the colony. In short, their very presence threatened to destroy Kenyan civilization. Thus, in the minds of the settlers, they had to be eliminated. Now to be clear, the Mau Mau were violent. Their oaths demanded that they sought the death of literally anyone assisting their white colonizers. We might be able to sympathize with their cause, but not their methods. The story of Mau Mau is the story of an original sin, the stealing of land from the Kikuyu people. We can easily look at this moment as one of good versus evil. One group living their best life when a more technologically advanced people comes to destroy their way of life in order to profit from their misery. As the story progresses, however, it becomes a fight between what we would deem as between two bad guys. The sympathy that you will hear from me for the Kikuyu comes in part because the heavyweight title fight that ensues is a vicious, no-holds-barred, bloody, one-sided mismatch from the very beginning. The Mau Mau never had a chance. The first colonial response that went far beyond a normal policing mandate occurred on November 23, 1952, at a marketplace in Kerrara. Several hundred kikuyu crowded the marketplace on that day to listen to a young man who claimed to have had a vision regarding the end of colonial rule. Police ordered the crowd to disperse. But when no one moved, more than 20 officers fired several rounds from their automatic weapons. When the smoke cleared, nearly 100 unarmed villagers lay dead for the crime of gathering at a market. Adding insult to their deaths was the fact that no white nor black member of the police force was ever tried for the crime. By this point, Kenya had become a powder keg just waiting for the fuse to be lit. That flame came with the murder of Chief Wawahu, a British loyalist whom the press had dubbed as Africa's Churchill. His car was stopped by a Mau Mau member impersonating a police officer, and he was gunned down in cold blood. The picture of his bullet-riddled body was widely disseminated by the press. The Kikuyu did not mourn the death of this particular chief, instead choosing to celebrate it as an act of social justice. Two weeks later, Governor Evelyn Baring declared a state of emergency in Kenya, and the war against the Mau Mau officially began. Baring told his cabinet that the quote-unquote war would be over in a mere three months, The plan was to decapitate the movement while introducing a few broad-based restrictive measures on the peoples of Kenya. They began with Operation Jock Scott on October 21, 1952, targeting 180 suspected leaders of Mau Mau. They reserved special attention for Jomo Kenyatta, whom they believed was the mastermind of the cult. Scores of police officers escorted him from his home under the cover of night to drive him to a waiting plane. As they took off, Kenyatta became convinced that he was to be thrown mid-air from the flight into the forest below, a location where his body could never be recovered. There were times in the next six years that he likely wished that his unassisted aerial flight had occurred. Instead of getting rid of the leader of one of Africa's largest Kikuyu political parties, Kenyatta was taken to Kapenguria, a courthouse in the most remote and inhospitable region of Kenya. Barring intelligence on Kenyatta couldn't have been more wrong, for there was no mastermind of this decentralized insurgency. Rather than collapsing without him, the Mau Mau movement grew more violent. Kenyatta had been a moderate voice within the Kikuyu political community and had worked hard to hold back those that preached violence and hatred. The entire war had begun on a false premise. Worse, the colonial government had just turned Jomo Kenyatta into a martyr. Jock Scott began a series of Mau Mau reprisals. Eric Boker, a World War II veteran, was found disemboweled in his home. Then an elderly couple near Thompson's Falls were mutilated by militants. Four days later, Tom Botel's body was found decaying in the Burma marketplace. He had been murdered in public during daylight. These stories gained traction and came to dominate both everyday conversation as well as the local news cycle. It was as if the settlers' worst nightmares had come alive. Most of them lived on isolated farms without telephones far from police assistance. Many of those settlers had long lived with the same level of dread that American plantation owners must have had when they heard that Nat Turner had risen up And hacked apart his slaver's family while they slept. In this state of constant fear, they demanded swift and violent justice. When the government couldn't supply it, they began to take the law into their own hands by forming vigilante groups. Teachers conducted class armed. Husbands taught their wives how to shoot so they could take their babies out on a stroll. Fear and hysteria were rampant, despite the fact that violence was still relatively rare and isolated. It is true that the attacks were bold and brazen, but the ones that I have listed were essentially all of the attacks that had occurred. America today is a significantly more dangerous place than Kenya during this time. We average a mass shooting each and every single day. Over the course of a year, a handful of murders had occurred in Kenya. But one doesn't think rationally when caught in an endless loop of fear. Many settlers began to call for the outright extermination of the Kikuyu people. Baring hadn't planned much further than Operation Jockscott, After all, he thought that it would be a quick three months' war at the worst. The Kikuyu that were rounded up had been thrown into detention camps without trials. This was despite the fact that the Geneva Convention and Article 5 of the European Convention on Human Rights were both already in effect. The two international legal demands had been created to prevent a repeat of the atrocities of German concentration camps as well as heinous Japanese POW camps. Remember, it's 1952 at this point in the story. To these guys in charge, World War II wasn't some far-off distant memory. The events had just wrapped up less than seven years prior. Many served in the war, and a few had even spent time in Japanese prison camps. Despite this, they repeated deeds and practices that they had previously fought to end. The Governor got around these international accords through a clever use of the Colonial Constitutional State of Emergency powers. Designed to be a temporary measure, the emergency, as Evelyn called the crisis, allowed his government to detain anyone designated as a threat to the state, for as long as the State of Emergency was in effect. While it was designated to be short-term in nature, Bahrain would never remove the designation. Now, given dictatorial powers, the government's arrest numbers piled up quickly. In September 1953, there were 1,500 Mau Mau suspects in camp. By June of 1954, it had swelled to at least 40,000. The camps eventually held 80,000 kikuyu set up with the intention of institutionalizing torture, hard labor, and eventually death. Thus, less than seven years after defeating the Nazis, Britain found itself in the curious position of constructing its own labyrinth of detention camps in order to preserve their colonial rule in Kenya. Like Hitler, the British justified their nefarious decision-making by wrapping it within simplistic metaphors involving the medical community. They told themselves that the purpose of the detention system was to quarantine those who had been forcibly infected with Mau Mau sorcery. It was once again an opportunity for the settlers to fix them, while simultaneously preventing this disease from going viral to their other colonial assets. Again, however, this was destined to fail for the simple fact that it rested on a faulty premise. The British were trying to fix a people, rather than the problem that had caused them to act in the first place, namely the fact that their land had been stolen, and there was no way for them to successfully survive off of what remained. To them, it was a question of whether they would fight or accept a slow but inevitable death of their people. Their backs were against the proverbial wall, and there is nothing left to do but fight for survival in that situation. This desire to fix the Mau Mau meant that rehabilitation would be the name of the internment industry. Within the borders that they had drawn, Britain would conduct one of the first hearts and minds campaign of the 20th century. Thomas Asquith, a former Olympic rower, was placed in charge of the rehabilitation effort. Asquith believed that Mao Mao adherence to oaths had tortured the minds of the detainees that he had been charged with rehabilitation. Thus, he insisted that any re-education program could not begin until the prisoners' demented psyche had been reached. Asquith is actually one of the few good guys in this demented story. He had a true desire to lessen the plight of the prisoners. But his words quickly became twisted by those that favored methods of systemic violence. Louis Leakey was an archaeologist who had grown up among the Kikuyu. Based upon his prior experience, Leakey served as the cultural expert for the colonizers. In his mind, Asquith's words meant that a Mau Mau member could not participate in rehabilitation until he had confessed the oath, or as Leakey put it, vomited up the poison of Mau Mau. This was contrary to what Asquith had been arguing, for he held the belief that the Mau Mau's grievances were legitimate and not a result of some kind of mass psychosis. When he proclaimed that he wanted to treat their psyche, he meant an increased investment into social programs, such as education, employment relief, housing, social security, and expanding their access to land. Unfortunately, Asquith's blueprint for ending the crisis was underfunded to the point of rendering it meaningless. His rehabilitation programs received a pathetic 0.5% of the colonial budget. This was in stark contrast to the 20% that was dedicated to policing and the detention system. At the height of the emergency, there was just one rehabilitation officer for every 10,000 detainees. With the full support of Baring's government, the internee system, as it was first called, evolved into the pipeline, a name which conjures up a conveyor belt, where detainees would travel from one level to the next on an assembly line of rehabilitation from which they would reemerge back into society As a happy little British loyalist who had succeeded by confessing to the wrongness of their oaths. Oaths that the Mau Mau adherents believed would literally kill them if they betrayed it. The rehabilitation method used within the pipeline was torture, both physical and psychological. There are a number of first-hand experts who can teach us about the effects that torture has on one's body and soul. For this one, we'll quote Gustav Harling, who was a detainee in the very worst of the Soviet gulags. Upon escaping his own imprisonment, Harling concluded that, There is nothing a man cannot be forced to do by hunger and pain. But once again, the British underestimated the mysterious power of the Mau Mau Oath, as well as the prisoner's desire for Ithka-na-Wethu, land and freedom. Upon arrest and upon entering the pipeline, suspects had to go through a process known as screening. The process varied with each camp, but it was always humiliating. Screening remains the one word in Kukuyu land today that is synonymous with British colonial rule. As Caroline Elkins was interviewing pipeline survivors, the men and women that she interacted with never translated the word screening into their own language. Instead, they paused in their own tongue and torturously enunciated the English word screening in a slow, deliberate, colonial British accent. This is because there is absolutely no word in the Kikuyu lexicon that captures the same excruciating meaning of what these prisoners went through. In one of the worst iterations of screening, the detainees were first stripped before then being forced through a cattle dip of disinfectant, while the Askaris, their term for local guards, push their heads under the chemical solution, occasionally to the point of drowning their charges. Carew, who was a young man when he entered the pipeline, described his ordeal to Elkins. He reveals to us that we all stood there, young and old men alike, dripping wet from the dip and naked. Then they decided to search us again, For what reason I couldn't fathom, because we had already been searched so many times already. The white officers instructed the Askaris to search every part of our naked bodies, to check every one of our orifices. It was sinful enough to be standing there with our elders without our clothes, but then to have those kinds of things done to us? The entire process was done to the deafening beat of the chorus that rang Piga-Piga-Sana. Beat them, beat them, keep beating them. The, those kinds of things done to us comment by Carew defy the modern mind. To the point that I have to mention a warning about some graphic descriptions coming. I would love it if the history of humans all smelled like roses, but like the rose it comes full of dangerous thorns. The worst of the violence came after the screening was complete. That was when the interrogation began. A man named Kirigumi put it succinctly, to be interrogated means to be beaten. Electric shock was widely utilized, as was fire. Bottles often broken, gun barrels, knives, snakes, vermin, and hot eggs were each thrust up men's rectums and women's vaginas. The interrogation teams whipped, shot, burned, and mutilated Mau Mau suspects. Supposedly to gather information about military operations, as well as incriminating evidence to be used against the suspects in court. Women's breasts were squeezed with pliers, and men's testicles were crushed in order to obtain confessions. All of this was undertaken based upon mere suspicion of involvement. None of the Kikuyu at this stage in the pipeline had ever received due process. The British felt that there was no need for respecting the rule of law, as self-described screening experts claimed that they could identify who was Mau Mau by the look in their eyes. One even declared that he could know the number of oaths a man had taken by just looking at his demeanor. Locals referred to this as the Mau Mau look. The violence began anew with each day's roll call and never ceased while in the pipeline. Askaris arrived each day armed with guns and their trusty Viboko rhino whips. These guards had been indoctrinated by the system to fear their charges. They were repeatedly taught through training that Mau Mau's were cannibals and that unless the guards succeeded in getting them to submit to civilized rule through violence, that they or their family would become the next victim but it would be wrong to view these men as mere victims of an evil system. There were Ascaris that were kinder than others, those who performed their duties with professionalism rather than sadism. Guards always have some options, able to choose whether they would respond with brutality or compassion. Without exception, ex-detainees pointed to the Kikuyu Loyalists as the pipeline's most brutal enforcers of the system. German socialist Wolfgang Sofsky details this phenomenon via the experiences of the Nazi concentration camps. Sofsky explains that there were never enough Nazis to dominate their victims. In order to succeed, they needed help from others residing within their world. If the Polish, Austrians, or even members of Vichy France hadn't bought into the Nazis' work, it would have been impossible to operate the Holocaust's worst extermination camps on their formerly sovereign territory. They could have resisted, but instead they complied. Inside of the camps, Capo officers were chosen, tasked with forcing inmates to comply, even when the guards weren't watching. Within his work, softsky stressed that by making a small number of victims into his accomplishes, the regime blurred the boundary between settlers and inmates. If not for the self-administration in the collaboration of the prison detainees, discipline and social control would soon have buckled and collapsed. Loyalists and Askaris had a lot to prove to themselves and others. They had chosen the British side, and had received great privilege because of it. This privilege, however, came at the direct expense of their former friends and tribal members. There was great shame for these Loyalists, for as long as Mau Mau remained, They face the constant reminder of the internal conflict that they lived with regarding the difficult decision that they had made to choose an easier life for themselves. Professor Chris Polson writes that the roots of violence are found in emotion, particularly in the complex emotion of shame. He teaches that the dark side of shame is a sense of defectiveness, a sense of powerlessness, of worthlessness. That shame can explode into violence against the self and against others. It serves as the underside of narcissism. The combination of this desire to better their own lives and the shame of it ruining the lives of others resulted in truly detestable actions. Thus, the loyalists' self-loathing found an outlet in violence against others. One of the most famous Kikuyu to switch sides and serve as a member of a pipeline screening team was Peter Mugai Kenyatta, the son of Jomo Kenyatta. Peter had joined the Athi River camp after making his own confession while in the pipeline. After roll call, forced labor began at 6 a.m. and commenced until 6 p.m. Everything about the pipeline was regimented. Caroline Elkins illustrated as much by writing that the pipeline was based upon the principles of organized terror, violence, and degradation. All applied in an environment where space, time, and social exchange were completely organized and routinized. Mao Mao suspects were subject to constant control. When they woke up, when they ate, when they were counted, when they went to work, how long they labored, when they urinated and defecated, when they went to sleep. Freedom was eliminated, and violence, or the threat of it, was part of every waking and sleeping moment of their lives. The explosive increase in pipeline numbers wasn't resulting in a reduction of Mau Mau violence or recruitment. Rather than causing the British to reconsider their strategy, they doubled down on the violence. General Sir George Erskine was put in charge of the next major roundup of suspected MaMa members on April 24, 1954. The center of the operation was Kenya's largest and most vibrant city, Nairobi. Erskine's team internally discussed the commencing of Operation Anvil, as it was named, or Nairobi's D-Day. The name of the operation is fascinating as it shows that the British continued to view themselves as liberators rather than the villains of the story. An all-white, 25,000-man strong security force descended unannounced upon Nairobi, and cordoned off the city for a sector-by-sector search. What commenced was shockingly reminiscent of how members of the Nazi Einsatzgruppen located Jewish hideaways across Europe's most populated cities. In fact, the whole British operation came to be described as Gestapo-like. Loudspeakers informed locals to immediately pack one bag and leave the rest of their belongings. All Africans were then taken to temporary barbed wire enclosures and sorted according to their ethnicity. Each group was then prepared for ad hoc on site screening, which included a violent and intrusive strip search. If the confused citizens of Nairobi moved too slowly, they were beaten. If they moved too quickly, they were beaten. If they spoke to the screeners, They were beaten and then shipped directly to a vehicle destined for detention. Once all Africans were sorted and incapacitated behind barbed wire, the soldiers, or Johnnies as the locals referred to them, then proceeded to loot the houses of those they had just rounded up. Nairobi became the linchpin in the military strategy against the Mau Mau rebels who still fought and hid in the forests, or among the locals. The city was targeted legitimately, for it did serve as Mau Mau's main supply base, recruitment center, and financial support. Three-fourths of the city was Kikuyu, and they had begun to successfully spread their hatred of the British to other ethnicities. In the colonial government's determination, there was a very real threat of this transforming from a conflict against one ethnic group to a war against all of Kenya's native ethnic groups. Operation Anvil was designed to nip it in the bud before the contagion spread. Testimony from ex-detainees give us a full picture of what life was like behind the wire, as the inhabitants of the pipeline referred to their detention. First, an important semantic. While most Kikuyu had taken at least the first oath, very few had actually committed an act of violence. In the American judicial system, you must show both intent, the act of taking the oath, and an action taken towards the crime. In our system, most of the Kikuyu in camps would have never been accused of a crime, despite their hatred for the British, for they had taken no action against them. Despite the fact that very few of those in the pipeline deserved to be there, solidarity among detainees was largely upheld. In fact, oathing ceremonies continued within the prison camps. Although there were obviously less of them considering their illegality and the fact that it was considerably more difficult to find both banana leaves and a goat suitable for ritual sacrifice while confined to prison. Innocents were surely caught in the enormous web cast by operations such as Anvil and Jock Scott. Once in the pipeline, however, it was clear that only Mao Mau members would be tolerated by their peers. The detainees were ripe to remain suspicious, as the British would regularly force those that had confessed back into the camps to gather intelligence and serve as informants. When these traitors, as Mau Mau members perceived them, were discovered, they were dealt with swiftly and brutally, often resulting in their strangulation or a slit throat by a piece of corrugated metal from a roof that had been. Formed into a prison shiv. To them, giving up your oath meant that you would be killed, and sometimes God works through the hands of others. Thus, if you were not a member of Mau Mau prior to entering the pipeline, your only chance of survival was to join Mau Mau. The oaths that were spoken demanded no less of the Kikuyu prisoners tasked with carrying out prison justice. This group solidarity helped strengthen the resolve of the victims, who were subjected to never-ending torture. It would have been much easier to give up as the forced labor was backbreaking and left many crippled, but they performed the impossible tasks placed at their feet. At the camp of Mbaski, the detainees built a modern-day airport, now renamed the Jomo Kenyatta International Airport. Today, it remains the busiest airport in the country. At Magueda Island, the inmates literally built their own prison after arriving in shackles from the cargo hold of a boat, showing that the British, in this mission to make up for their past mistakes regarding slavery, could willfully ignore their own history regarding the Middle Passage. The detainees then spent several days being forced to build perimeter trenches, watchtowers, and even the isolation pits that they would be forced into when they refused to work at the breakneck pace the British guards demanded. Only after the entire facility was finished were they then allowed to remove their shackles. But in the limited free time they had, the prisoners pushed back at every narrative the British attempted to impose upon these so-called savages. For instance, the inmates formed government committees. Everything from a prison welcoming committee to judicial committees, as well as medical committees and even debate committees. Strangely, Jomo Kenyatta, the supposed leader of the Mau Mau, and the man that would later become the first president of Kenya, refused to serve on any and all political committees during his imprisonment. He spent his entire time in the pipeline as a cook, which, when you take into account the heat inherent to Kenya's climate, is not as pleasant or enviable of a job as you might have initially imagined. During this time, a gulf was created between Kenyatta and his fellow Jock Scott detainees, who were all high-level political leaders of Mau Mau. The others even turned on Jomo at one point, attempting to kill him in prison. For the detainees, controlling their own society meant drafting and enforcing their own rules. Self-policing and discipline became normalized in codes of conduct, which included rules unique to each camp. To help slow the spread of disease, Magetta Island's rulebook called the Magetta Manifesto outlawed spitting, urinating, and defecating outside the toilet bucket. In Manyani, an area of unbearable heat, it was punishable by death to steal another man's cool water, which was made by passing the water from one work tin to another over the course of hours. The harshest forms of justice, however, were ones that involved ostracism from the group. The fact that shunning was regarded as so painful reveals to us how important solidarity was to an inmate's survival in the pipeline. As is true in all prison systems, detainees worked with guards in order to build a functioning black market. One of the unique aspects of this underground economy was the smuggling of letters. The letter-writing campaign wasn't just to loved ones outside the camps. Rather, detainees wrote a prolific number of letters to the government of Kenya, to Queen Elizabeth, and to the United Nations, all detailing their conditions and objecting to what were obviously clear rights violations of international law. Sometimes they bribed guards or cleaning crews to release the letters from arranged drop off points or mailboxes. One camp's designated post office was a library book about Queen Victoria. The ex detainee that revealed this subterfuge still couldn't believe that the guards never caught on to their scheme. Saying to Elkins, Can you imagine any of us caring that much about Queen Victoria? News from the outside is always in high demand in any prison system. With guards carefully controlling the flow of information from the outside, this was both a difficult and dangerous task. Detainees shared news from new inmates about the outside by perfecting a technique they referred to as speaking to the wire, which involved them facing away from whomever they were communicating with. Then speaking a mix of Swahili, English, slang, Kishwali, and Kikuyu, it would appear to any guard that happened past them that the detainee had gone mad and was just talking to themselves. More formal news came whenever detainees got materials to write with. The Manyani Times, the Weya Times, the Kamango Times, and even a publication named The Way of the Wire were all informal news services in the camps. Written by the detainees and secretly passed through the barbed wire fences, the surviving documents showcase that the prisoners were far from the savages that the British claimed. A lot of the stories carried by the papers, however, were merely Mau Mau propaganda that foretold the coming end to the war or the prisoners' imminent salvation via United Nations intervention. This was done to give the prisoners the hope needed to continue to hold out from betraying the cause in the face of constant physical and psychological torture. In reality, the world had turned a blind eye to the crisis facing the Kikuyu. The supposedly filthy vermin, as the British saw them, also chose to use their time and attention to educate themselves. Some of the detainees were already well-educated from their experience in missionary schools. A few even had advanced degrees from foreign universities. Jomo Kenyatta, for instance, held a master's degree from the prestigious London School of Economics. Those willing to taught inmates grammar, logic, math, as well as practical lessons such as which guards to avoid, how to effectively bathe in sand, and how to treat scorpion bites with tobacco snuff. One teacher, Diri Kagombe, fondly reminisces about how everyone would be gathered around not wanting to miss a word of the lesson while he drew letters in the sand with a stick. To him it was quite inspiring to see how those weary men wanted to feed their minds. They also spent a large amount of their time handing out nicknames. Detainees would rarely refer to their jailers by their given names. Instead, they referred to them via nicknames. For the Kikuyu, it was a way of taking power away from their torturers. Their creativity seemed endless, as they addressed one individual as Muru Wa Itna, or Son of the Buttocks. Muru was, of course, Itna's kid. Itna meaning ass. Some nicknames were to send signals about who to avoid. For instance, there was Kobaboro, which meant the killer, as well as individuals named Mormor, the whip, and the man with no shirt. That last one designated a particularly brutal settler who was known to take the time to remove his shirt every time he committed the heinous crime of raping a prisoner. But there was also Wagathundia, which translates to something along the lines of the ugliest human being that you could ever imagine. As terrible as life was within the pipeline, it wasn't that much better on the outside. The Kikuyu that managed to avoid the pipeline still were confined to the reservations, subject to the Crown's ever-changing policies. In 1953, the Swinnerton Agricultural Plan was introduced, once again based on a false premise. Specifically, the premise that native agricultural methods were inherently destructive and inefficient. This attempt to improve agriculture wasn't just a moment of benevolence by the British. If they could successfully boost the efficiency of African farms, then they could pack ex-detainees into smaller portions of the reservations after they had successfully exited the pipeline. After all, the guests of the pipeline lost all property rights once they were within the system. In order to reclaim land from the wilderness, the British forced the Free Kikuyu to work in the same manner as the detainees for 90 days out of the year. This served in addition to the hut and pole taxes that had already been levied. Refusal to work resulted in imprisonment for six months. The International Labor Organization called this phase of the emergency as one of outright enslavement. As the Mau Mau insurgency grew worse, colonial attention turned to the reservations as a way of hindering support to the movement. Every Kikuyu became looked at as a suspect. In June 1954, the first emergency village was created via passage of the Forest Village Authorization. Gathoni Muhai only became aware of the policy change when she saw smoke billowing from the homesteads on the ridge next to hers. What came after that realization is a horror story. Gathoni recalls that all the homes and cattle herds in our area were wiped out in a matter of hours. When I saw the smoke in the next ridge, I started burying pots and other items under the floor, and I bundled my children and took what I could. Among the chaos and flames, many families became separated and were never able to reunite. The removal of the inhabitants was done to both control the population, as well as to seize the land for British purposes. Groups were transported to a new village that had been set up utterly devoid of all of the necessities of surviving. Often the only finished parts of these emergency villages were the Home Guard barracks and Loyalist homesteads. The Kikuyu were forced to build their shelter, grow their food, and create water sanitation systems for themselves from scratch. The homes which were supplied were a mere 100 square feet. For comparison's sake,s prison cells in America average 70 square feet in diameter. Women and children, most men were already in the pipeline by now, had to sleep on the same floors that they cooked on and which occupied the family's waste bucket. Roll call for the villagers began before the sun came up. If you were late, perhaps because you were feeding your family, the home guards would break down your door and beat you in front of your children. You were then marched two to three hours away, put to work digging a 10 to 15 foot deep trench around your village. This trench was supposedly created in order to protect you from armed Mao Mao attacks, but it actually served to keep you in. Just like the strategic hamlet program in Vietnam, the armed guards designated to protect the village all had their guns facing inward, rather than positioned outward facing the forests of the Mao Mao. The official British numbers for the detention system do not include any of the families caught up in these emergency villages. But when you consider them as part of the detention system, you begin to realize that over 95% of all Kikuyu were detained in some fashion. For these people, there was no difference between life within or outside of the pipeline. Failure to work had its own special punishment in the reserve villages that served as both physical and psychological torture, called the Daki. The Daki was a pool about four feet deep and filled with water, and was then covered with a thick matting of sisal branches, forcing those trapped inside to crouch and fumble their way around in the wet darkness. More than a dozen captives would be kept inside the cell at any given time, huddled together in the center for both heat and protection from the snakes and vermin that had come to infest the cell. Food collection occurred exactly once a week in the village. If you happened to be in the daki during that time, your family would miss out be forced to become beggars for the week. It is at one of these communal plots that Elkins introduced us to one of the most sadistic characters in this insane story. The locals referred to him as YY. This particular guard would depart in order to position himself once the food collection began. When a whistle blew for the villagers to return home, he would begin shooting at the women with a sniper rifle. Villagers recall these stories with horror, revealing that when someone was shot, they were just abandoned where they lay. It was like he was hunting wild game. Why? Wai was also known as He Without a Shirt. It was a lack of food that villagers remember the most about their time during the Mau Mau conflict, with one saying that hunger was the worst problem. That's what was killing most of the people. They were starving us on purpose, hoping we would give in. The profoundly negative effects of villagerization became clear by 1957, as disease ravaged the countryside. Disease, one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, always preys upon the weak. Malnutrition casually invites and ignites viruses. The British, however, proved to be quite the optimists on the subject. A district commissaire in Meru summed up the general sentiment that, from a health point of view, I regard villagerization as being exceedingly dangerous and we are already starting to reap the benefits. We are, in fact, trying to effect in a few months a major social revolution which took 500 years or more to achieve in England. Today, many women in Kenya consider the entire central province as a kind of mass unmarked grave. By the end of Mau Mau, over 800 emergency villages had been built each with their own stories, their own why-whys, their own suffering. Women were found at all levels of the pipeline. Committee camp was the largest prison for female Mau Mau adherents. In addition to the screenings, roll calls, daily torture, and forced confessions, women were also forced to attend instructional classes on developing good domestic skills, like how to mend their husband's clothes. Toilet bucket and gardening duties were the most sought after at committee. A detainee named Winnie describes this coveted duty, detailing that we would combine the solid waste into the buckets lift them onto our heads again, and carry them out to the dumping area, which was a considerable distance away from the camp. The guards would also be chasing us and whipping our legs, which made the runny waste go down our faces. There four walls made of grass resembling a room were kept. A lot of grass will be heaped to a height of about five feet, and into the enclosure there we dumped dump the contents of our buckets. The whole time we used our bare hands and the ends of the broom to clean out the feces. The British colonial government's work camps in Kenya were not wholly different from those in Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia. They functioned on what Wolfgang Sofsky called the economy of waste. After a few months, the grass-cutting and garden workers would take the composite of human waste and use it as fertilizer for the camp's vegetable garden. The prisoners were literally eating food grown from their own shit. Why would women seek out a job that involves getting beaten while other people's waste runs down your face and hands? The answer is both simple and depressing. It made them less likely to be sexually assaulted. For women in the pipeline and the emergency villages, sexual assault and violent rape were constant presences in their life. One of the most misunderstood features of sexual assault is that it is a crime of power and not passion. Even having human excrement wasn't enough to prevent all attacks. Because the guards could, they did. The Loyalists, Home Guard, Askaris, and White officers all exerted their power over their charges. With no justice to be found via the government, the victims of assault had no avenues to turn to. For them, resistance meant death. One detainee tearfully testified that we could not utter a word because that would mean instant death. They would rape you in full sight of your father-in-law, and he would not say a word of protest. He would just watch quietly and bear the pain patiently. Even your own daughters could be raped in your sight, and you wouldn't protest or prevent it. Mothers and daughters were sometimes assaulted together in the same hut by white and black members of the security forces. Rape was so common that some women complained about being assaulted while on work duty and then still having to fulfill their work quota afterwards without being given enough time remaining to complete it because of how long the assault took. Failure to complete such assignments could result in being beaten raped again, or thrown in the docky for an unknown amount of time. Margaret Yeraru explained it to Elkins, saying that we felt that we would rather allow them to rape us than get killed, especially those who had small children depending on them. Children were regularly born of these violent acts. In 1959, camp officials estimated that about 15% of the detainees and convicts had at least one child in the camp with them. Many of these children earned the term Nusa Nusa, or Chotara, meaning half-caste. These children were constant physical reminders of the repeated rapes their mothers had endured. For many men, exiting the pipeline was just the beginning of a new nightmare, as they returned home to find their land confiscated by loyalists. Their family might be missing, or if found, there might be a Noosa Noosa child living in your home. Mary Wa Curia explains that most men entered into such situations with understanding and compassion saying even those men who found their wives with children born while they were away did not blame them, but just accepted the children as their own. Everybody understood that we had been forcibly separated. Whatever happened cannot be blamed on anybody, because all of us have been living in our separate hells. Where no one had any certainty that the other would survive, or that reunion would be possible. But there were instances of men that could not handle this new normal. The suicide rate for ex-members of the pipeline was exceedingly high. By 1957, 2,000 detainees were being released from the pipeline every month. Carruthers Monkey Johnstone entered the picture as the head of the Ministry of African Affairs. The Oxford-educated aristocrat earned his nickname before he ever set foot in Kenya. His friends had called him Monkey due to his unfortunate physical appearance, which some described as primate-like. The name stuck as he moved up the colonial government ranks. Monkey Johnstone's first problem was how to reabsorb so many kikuyu on reserves that were failing to produce enough food for the people already living there. By this point, the Swinderton plan had been shown to be a clear failure. European farming techniques did not work better than the locals. Johnstone's solution to the problem was to fudge the math. He said that the Kikuyu had already proven that they could live off less food than anyone else, so they just readjusted the targeted standard of African living, with a stroke of a pen, the same amount of land could now fit 150,000 more rehabilitated Kikuyu. His second problem was how to keep the Kikuyu on the reservations. Many ex detainees had lost their families during the war. Without someone to embrace them, they weren't welcome back among the community because they were known to have betrayed their oaths in order to exit the pipeline. Each side of the conflict refused to aid them. The Loyalists weren't going to share their spoils with ex-Mau-Mau, and there were no jobs available on the reservations for oath-breakers. Many just resorted to a life of wandering. In fact, juvenile delinquency and child prostitution skyrocketed, as children did anything that they could to survive. Young girls that worked in the Nairobi brothels would sell their services for two shillings the equivalent of one meal overpopulation of the reserves meant that hordes of the kikuyu left the reservations to nairobi to try to find work by the end of 1956 3000 kikuyu were being arrested each month for minor offenses two thirds of those arrests were mere id and curfew offenses despite the pipeline successfully churning out 2000 kikuyu a month just as many were entering the pipeline, transforming it into a revolving door of detention. Governor Baring and Johnstone had to find a way to break the Mau Mau detainees even faster. The solution came out of Weah Province. Violence and torture had for years dominated life in the camps. A cornucopia of terror, including public brutality, rape, and starvation, existed within the villages and prison camps. Yet Deary, a man who lived through seven of the worst camps in the pipeline, described Weah as the nadir, or lowest of the low. It was in Weah that Askaris would shackle detainees to posts and then take sap from a leaf known to attract mosquitoes, and rub it slowly all over the victim. Within minutes, the man would be covered from head to toe with mosquitoes. It was such a terrible scene. One detainee said that you would never have recognized them afterwards. Their bodies had been devoured. In Wia, detainees had finally had enough and fought back. In one prisoner's words, they did it to show the commandant that they would not die like cowards, even if some of us had had their manhood taken. Amazingly, the detainees were able to take the prison facility, and without weapons of their own held off the guards for four days. Despite the fact that the government had sent out a general service unit and the Kenyan police reserves as backup, It was food denial that finally ended the standoff, as the detainees had already been without food for six or seven days prior to the revolt. This heroic act of defiance ends with an unintended consequence for the peoples of Kenya. Just as the courageous Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, the defiance was futile in the end and set a course for the system to become even worse. Monkey Johnstone brought in Terence Gavigan, an outsider who would serve as a fall guy if his theories didn't work. Gavigan applied a policy based upon John Cowan's dilution technique. The dilution technique was pretty straightforward. If you could force them to agree with you on simple things, it will make them more likely to agree with you on the hard things. They would bring in a group of 50 hardened Mau Mau the worst of the worst, individuals who had been in the pipeline for over four years and had steadfastly refused to break their oaths. The detainees were ordered to do a simple task, such as picking up a pencil that the guard dropped in front of them or bending down to lick the floor. If they refused, they were forced to physically comply with the act. These beatings were savage, and only let up once the task was completed, therefore forcing the prisoner to submit, even if it was symbolic only to the guards. Eskaris now had the authority and green light to utilize unbridled brute force to overpower the detainees. Gavigan described his methods as a kind of rape, and that for his methods to break the hardest of the hard, there had to be a phase of violent shock. It was for this that Gavigan earned the nickname Karuga Dwa, or the Big Troublemaker. The dilution technique worked. Mini Mau Mau broke down during the song and dance portion of rehabilitation class. Deary, a prisoner at WIA, explained, It was because they had been so abused. And sitting there, incapable of being able to sing, and then being beaten for that incapability, they just couldn't take it anymore. For his installation of a system that he himself referred to as a kind of rape, Gavigan was promoted. With his newfound power, he fired Askwith, the one good guy in the system who had been trying to rehabilitate the Mau Mau. Gavigan's ascension to power ended the farce that had been rehabilitation. He even earned the rank of prestigious order of the British Empire, the first level to achieving British knighthood. It wasn't the success of Gavigan that ended the pipeline. Individuals within the British Labour Party began to force the issue of Kenyan rights in London, MP Barbara Castle did everything she could to shine light on the horrors of the colonial government. Through painstakingly hard work, public breakthroughs began to slowly occur. For instance, the Lalatang letter was published. This was a letter from an inmate written eloquently in English and published that described everyday life in the pipeline. It caught the public's attention when it openly questioned whether the Nazi camps were better. At the point of the letter being published, native Kenyans were being elected to join the colonial government. In order to have the right to vote, citizens had to first be awarded a Loyalist certificate. This kept most anti-British leaders out of office, but there were those willing to cross the partisan line for the right to cause. Lua members Tom Boya and Ojinga Odinga pulled the strings on the Lolotang letter and demanded the camps be open to the government and the press. Even as government officials, they were denied, and it seemed as if the Lolotang letter storm would blow over without creating any positive change. The International Red Cross put a two-month mission into the field touring the camps, but the leader of the mission was an old friend of Governor Baring's, and the tour ended with an assurance that compared to the French in Algeria, the Kenyans are angels of mercy. But then Eileen Fletcher broke her confidentiality agreement, something that all government officials were forced into signing, and she wrote a book about what she had seen as a detention officer in the pipeline. Police Captain Philip Meldon also became a whistleblower, providing detailed first-hand testimony on torture, including that men have been tortured to reveal what they know, often only on the mere suspicion. Additionally, men have had their legs broken with a stone because they would not speak, and men's private parts were laid on a table and beaten until the scrotum burst because they would not speak. Finally, he revealed that men were beaten on the soles of their feet till they could not walk, because they would not speak. The Anglican churches began publishing horrors that they had witnessed. It was a slow drip of heinous stories coming out of Kenya. But it wasn't the injustice, the torture, or the rapes that ended the struggle against Mau Mau. Compared to some inmates having live scorpions jammed into their rectums, it was a relatively minor event that ended the emergency. It became known as the Hola Massacre. On March 4, 1959, a news report came over the wire that 10 detainees had died in Hola camp after drinking bad water. A tip to British Parliament member Barbara Castle suggested that the story about bad water was a cover-up. In reality, the dilution technique was to blame for the deaths. On the morning of the 4th, detainees had come to a roll call where they were outnumbered 5 to 1 by the guards, and the Iskaris had all arrived to the party armed with heavy sticks. The detainees were given an impossible task, and upon complaining about it, the lead guard blew his whistle. A detainee explains that the white officer blew his whistle and ordered the guards on to us. It was as if the guards had been coached about it. The dust that there was cannot be described. Even today, whenever I remember about the event, I shed tears. I cannot understand how I escaped death on that day. The guards were so many. Their clubs would hit against each other as several guards tried to hit the same detainee. I was hit and I fell down. The detainee who fell over me had his skull broken, and I was covered in his brains and blood. I pretended to be dead. Other detainees continued to be beaten long after they had died. The first time, six detainees died. The white officer blew his whistle to stop the beating, and then asked how many detainees had been killed. Rather than stop the beating, Sullivan ordered the six bodies dragged away, and then blew his whistle again. The mayhem started up again until another whistle, so that he could ask how many had died. This time, the number reached 10, at which point the beatings were ordered stopped. When compared to the daily tragedies in the pipeline, the reservations, and the emergency villages, the whole of massacre appears rather tame. But times were changing. It was now 1959 and the three-month-long war against the Mau Mau that governor Baring had promised was finishing its sixth year with little end in sight. JFK had come to power in America and was pushing hard against imperialism, shining the spotlight towards the fight against the communist Soviet Union. America considered disgruntled Western colonized nations such as Kenya as ripe for Soviet propaganda and communist revolution. Support for the colonial government of Governor Baring evaporated almost overnight from London. Instead of grandstanding for liberty and justice, London quietly forced the major players into retirement. Fearing that a public apology would appear as weakness to colonies around the world, they covered up their crimes, hoping that the world would not notice. The emergency was just turned off overnight. Officially, the British report that 11,000 Mau Mau were killed during the war, while 1,800 Loyalists died at the hands of the Mau Mau. Data, however, suggests to Elkins that the real death toll is somewhere between 130,000 and 300,000. The British were meticulous record keepers, but they burned all information related to Mau Mau upon Kenya's independence in 1963. There is not a single document that exists to tell us how many camps were part of the official pipeline. Officially, the British say that 80,000 Kikuyu were detained. If, however, you include all parts of the system, that number ends up closer to 1.5 million, virtually the entirety of the Kikuyu population. Just seven years after the Holocaust, the British had conducted a murderous campaign to eliminate the Kukuyu people, and the world stood by to let it happen. To this day, there has never been any form of official reconciliation in Kenya. There are no monuments for Mau Mau. Children are not always taught about this part of their nation's past in school. They cannot speak about it except for in the privacy of their own homes and, with the exception of the relatives of the Hola massacre, there has never been any kind of financial consideration given to those who lost family members in the camps and villages or property to the local loyalists. It is as if it never happened. One student in Kenya explains on Kiora that Kenya's history curriculum as taught in schools is more outward-facing than inward-looking. Mau Mau is only taught to Kenya's students in detail once they reach high school, and even then the focus is largely on politically correct figures, such as First President Jomo Kenyatta, and peripheral issues surrounding settler barbarity and the like. Mau Mau itself as an entity is not quite dwelt upon in schools beyond a cursory mention. Our next episode will look at the political rise of Shomo Kenyatta, detailing the role that his trial and detention played in that political rise. If you enjoyed this deep dive into the historical past of Kenya's detention system, I strongly recommend that you pick up a copy of Caroline Elkin's Imperial Reckoning, the untold story of Britain's gulag in Kenya. It was well deserving of its win of the Pulitzer Prize for Journalism and goes into great detail regarding the Mau Mau conflict via interviews with those that lived through it.